Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. When we think about the book of Proverbs, if you're familiar with Proverbs, what we tend to think about is these short little pithy statements filled with correction and instruction and, and wisdom. And that is, of all the books of the Bible, really the mark of the book of Proverbs. And that is primarily what you have, particularly in chapters 10 all the way through chapters 30. Just these little one-liners filled with so much wisdom and so much instruction. But we often forget that before we get to all of that, we have nine chapters of conversations. It is a conversation between a father and a son. These are really important conversations. They are in many ways a model for the way in which parents have conversations with their children. They are both intensely practical and deeply spiritual. And there is no topic off limits, whether it be uncomfortable or not. The father speaks to the son about friends and influences. He speaks about money. He speaks about success and, and hard work. He talks about girls and relationships. He talks to him about sex and the people to avoid and the people to be attracted to. Just conversation after conversation, but primarily the conversations are about the soul of the son. Because just like any parent, we want our children to do what is right. We want them to love God. We want them to make good decisions. We want them to work hard. But ultimately what we want is we want their heart to be turned to the Lord. We want them to love God. We want them to cherish the Lord. We want them to make decisions not just for our approval and not just because they're the right thing to do, but because it flows out of a heart that really loves God and desires to please him. And so because that's the main feel of these conversations, what you sense from the father is a lot of pleading to the son. Not begging, but, but close. Almost every single conversation in chapters one through nine begins with something like, my son, listen to me. My son, incline your, hear, your ear to me. My son, hear what I'm saying to you. My son, receive my instruction. It is worth more to you than anything else. And the reason you have this feel of, of pleading and, and begging and imploring is because what's being talked about is of utmost importance. It is the heart of a loving father who just longs for his child to choose the Lord. And Proverbs 9 is the last of the conversations. It is after this chapter that we do get into those little pithy statements we often think about. But this is the last of the conversations, and this is an important one. Not because he's going to say anything really different, but simply because it's the last one. And the truth is, he doesn't say anything much different. And he knows that, as often happens in conversations between parents and children, after a while, those conversations just begin to be white noise. We've heard all of them before. Matter of fact, we've heard them more than we wanted to hear them. And so the father begins to speak and the son says, Dad, I know this. You've said the same things over and over. And if you think your parents may have done this, the repetition in Proverbs 1 through 9 is incredible. I mean, just the same things over and over and over. And we say, Dad, I don't need to hear this. I've already heard this. And he says, you do need to hear it. But Dad, you've said it a thousand times. And we say, I know if you would have listened to the first time, I wouldn't have said it again. But you still don't get it. So I'm going to keep saying it. And not only am I going to keep saying it because you need it, I'm going to keep saying it because I need you to know what matters most. And you're going to remember what matters most by remembering back to the things that I told you over and over and over again. And so here we are in this last conversation, the father desperate for his son to get this. 
but knowing he has to communicate in a way that's a little bit different. And so what he does is he communicates in a way that becomes the model for the way Jesus would communicate. He tells a parable. You say, where did Jesus learn how to preach? Well, he learned how to preach from the preachers of the Old Testament. Most of it modeled after Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. But where did Jesus learn how to tell stories like this? Where he learned it from the Old Testament. And Proverbs 9 is a parable. It's a story that paints a colorful image for us that we are to imagine in our minds to communicate a truth. In order that by hearing the story and seeing the story, that the truth might have more impact on our lives. Couldn't Jesus have just stated the truth every time and every moment? Certainly, and he did this many times, but oftentimes he would stop and tell a story. Why? Because he wanted to grab our attention. He wanted us to think and he wanted us to picture something. And he wanted to take this compelling picture and, and use it to, to put a truth inside of our heart. Maybe it is that we won't remember a word, but we remember a picture. Maybe we don't remember a statement, but we remember a story. And so what we have here in, in Proverbs 9 is the parable of the two meals. The parable of two meals. Look with me there at Proverbs chapter 9. If you're there, say amen. amen. Listen to these words. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now we have in verses 7 through 12, some verses that don't seem to fit right between the parable of the two meals, but we will see how important they are in a moment. It says in verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man and cures injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. You bring blessing upon yourself, but if you scoff, you alone will bear it. You will pay the price. Back to the parable of the two meals. Woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest place in town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The parable of, of two meals. The first thing we see is an invitation to eat with wisdom. That's the first part of the parable. There's, there's an invitation to a meal with wisdom, to, to come into the home of wisdom and to sit and, and to feast with her. 
Now, like a parable, you have to picture this. You have to think about it. This is poetic literature. And the poetic literature has a way in one phrase with one word to paint a beautiful picture. And so it is, verses 1 through 3, that might not seem to say much to us, actually paint for us an incredible picture of the invitation that has been given to come and to eat with wisdom. And the first thing we're to see is this picture of the house. It's right there in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. This is, we know, a custom-built house because it says wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. So don't think a zero-lot prefab home in a subdivision. Think instead a 19th century manor. Imagine that you drive through the road and you see these incredible large gates built of stone and, and iron. And there's a road that is leading somewhere and you turn down the road and you see these large trees on either side of the road. And you drive and you drive and drive and you finally come around one corner and you see the most beautiful house you've ever seen in your entire life. Everything about the house is beautiful. And the landscaping is perfectly manicured and you can see that there are people in the yard working and, and clipping and trimming the hedges. And you can see that everything from the inside and out has been carefully chosen that this is an exquisite house you walk in and there are italian marble floors you look at the crown molding and it's hand carved from solid walnut that you notice that there's a fireplace in almost every room the living room the dining room the kitchen and all of them are carved out of precious stone hand carved and every place you look, there's nothing wrong. Everything's perfect. Everything is painted well. Everything is perfectly manicured. You can tell that with every single detail, someone thoughtly planned this home. You say, why should I picture it that way? Because that is the picture that we get from verse 1. But it's also because Solomon is writing this. And Solomon knows how to build a house. Solomon overlaid his entire house with gold. Solomon knows how to build a house and we know this, that there may be no one that has ever built a house, like the house that not only Solomon built for the Lord, but then the house after that, that he built for himself. And we are here to picture something absolutely beautiful, something absolutely magnificent, somewhere that you could tell has been there for a long time, was carefully planned and thought through. It says there in the end of verse one that she has hewn her seven pillars. That's important because the word hewn there means that these were carved out by hand. And it's probably not that seven are necessary. Seven may be symbolic for something else. And it seems to be that what's being communicated by the seven pillars is not that they were necessary to hold the house up, but they communicate stability. They communicate something of value and, and something of worth, something of, of great significance. And so even driving up to the house and see even the seven pillars makes you feel as if there's something special and something significant about this home. And then we're to notice the, the dining room. Verse 2, it says, she has also set her table. So imagine walking into the dining room and there's this large wooden table. And the room is filled with people who are working. And they're not frantic. There's a calmness about them. But they are busy. And there's someone over to the side who is ironing all of the linen napkins. And there's someone else who is folding all of the napkins. The person then places that napkin there and puts the silverware on top and you could tell that everything is being perfectly done. There's another person going alongside and measuring that there's exactly 30 inches between every place setting. 
You can literally see them going from spot to spot and, and measuring between every spot. And then there's someone coming along after that and, and the china is there and the, the silver is there and the crystal is there. But someone comes and stops before every single place setting and looks and just tilts things just a certain way in a way that no one else would notice or seem to care. That the silverware would be turned just to right the way that the, the chair is exactly the way that it needs to be. There's a lot of care and a lot of tension that has been given to the table. But then what to some of us may be the greatest part of all, there's attention given to the food. There's one letter that makes a lot of difference in this text. One letter, not one word, just one letter that communicates something to us, maybe a little more significant than you might be thinking when you think about the food. You would certainly imagine that there's going to be a good meal if all of this attention is given but it says in verse 2, she has slaughtered her beasts. And the letter that's important is the one at the end of beast, plural, meaning there's multiple meats. This is important division. Think of Brazilian steakhouse. Think of large skewers filled with meat. And they're steaming and they've perfectly been crafted. And they're dripping with juices. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen for Brazilian steakhouse? So, and then right when that one passes by, there's someone else that comes and offers you a different meat. And there's six different meats, things you've never heard of. And you don't care. You're going to try anything. And all of them look incredible. She's slaughtered her beast. There's, there's multiple meats. And there's homemade bread, verse 5. Come and eat of, of my bread, the bread that, that I have made. And beyond that, there's homemade wine. Drink of the wine I have mixed. And so maybe you notice as you walked into the house and, and you went to the back of the house and you saw the back of the house filled with these huge windows and you looked over the rolling hills and you saw something that looked like a vineyard out there. And you ask what it was and they say, well, yes, that's a vineyard. We grow our own grapes. And and then all of a sudden you realize that the wine that is being served you is, is wine that was made right there. But it was made years ago by a previous generation who had made the wine and, and kept the wine and reserved it for very, very special occasions. And all of a sudden you realize this is the wine you're being served. The one made long ago, the one perfectly crafted, the one perfectly chosen for this moment and specifically for this meal. Can you just imagine how good the house smells? The smell of, of the meats that have been cooked. The, the smell of the, of the bread that has been made. You just begin to imagine the time and, and the attention and the effort that goes into a meal like this. Some of you may know what it's like to prepare a meal like this. I mean, not only the time and the attention of, of making sure the table is set and, and the house is perfectly clean and the yard is right. But the time and the attention of the food the amount of animals that were killed, the kind of wine that was chosen, the bread that was handmade, the napkins that were ironed. There's just so much time, so much attention, and, and so much effort. And, and one thing that is very clear when you imagine that scene and you imagine the beauty of the house and the beauty of the table and all of the food that's prepared, someone special is coming for dinner. That has to be the case. I mean, everything about this wants us to understand that certainly this has to be a significant meal. So you may understand this. If, if I were to come home from work and, and the table was set and, and there was a plate and glasses and napkins and silverware, I would, I would think we're, we're having dinner. But if I were to come home and there were also placemats 
And there are also some flowers and maybe a candle lit. Well, that would, that would be a little bit more than might normally have happened. And, and so I would ask Andrew, I would say, well, is, is there family coming over? Do we, do we have somebody coming over? I wouldn't think it was our kids' friends because then it's just the napkins and the silverware and no flowers. But I would think, certainly, maybe, maybe we have some family coming over. But if I walk in the house and all of the kids are busy working, I'm, I'm imagining, all the kids are busy working <laughs> and everyone's diligently helping, and you can tell that a feast is being prepared and there's tons of pots and, and pans and you can smell the bread that is being cooked. And I look into the dining room and, and our wedding china, I don't, some of you don't know what that is. We got that. We were like the last generation that got wedding china. So the wedding china is there. Uh, and then what are those things that go under the wedding china? Those uh, chargers. That's right. The chargers are there. And the silver is there, and, and the tablecloth that Andrea got from her grandmother after she passed away, that lace tablecloth, that's laid there, and there's candles lit, and, and the lighting is just right. Well, then someone special's coming for dinner. Not that she wouldn't do that just for me, obviously, but I'm just saying, you're immediately going to think, aren't you? Who's coming for dinner? And it must not just be anybody. It has to be someone really, really special. The time, the effort, the attention. I think that's what makes verses three and four so surprising. So she sends out her young women to call from the highest places in town. So all of the, the young ladies that were helping make sure that the table was right, that were ironing the napkins and making sure the place settings were right, all of them that were scurrying around in the, in the dining room were all now gathered together. And the host says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the city, into the streets. I want you to go to the highest places in town. And here's what I need you to do. Listen carefully. I want you to invite everybody you can to come and eat. Well, I know, is there certain people you want to invite? No, everyone that you meet is invited. And so they go out. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sin, she says, come and, and eat the bread that I have made and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And so you're walking through the street and you know the house. Everybody knows the house. We know where the house is. We know the history of the house. We know the beauty of the house. We know the money represented in the house. And we have heard about the parties they throw. And we've heard from people who have heard from people who heard from people about the food that was there. And the time and the attention that was given. But all of a sudden now you're realizing that you're being invited to the house. You say, well, surely not, not me. Yes, it's for you. Everyone is invited. Anyone who wants to come, you're welcome to come. We have prepared a feast for you. Perfectly prepared for anyone to come. Now, what an amazing picture of kindness. I mean, imagine you hearing that someone did this. Imagine you hearing that, that someone has put together a, a feast all kinds of meats and homemade bread. And they spent days putting it all together. And they've set their dining room table perfectly. And then they go to downtown Athens. And they just invite anybody walking down the street. Would you like to come and have a meal? If you heard that somebody did that. You would be amazed by that. What, what an act of kindness and grace. What a beautiful thing. And a surprising thing to do. I've never known of anyone that has done something like that. It's not just inviting to the soup kitchen. Or, or inviting to get some canned goods. But we've prepared a feast for you. We ironed the tablecloths and the napkins. And we don't even know you and you're invited to come in. Imagine if it happened to you. Imagine if you were invited to dinner and you, and you walked into the dinner and you could tell the amount of time and energy and effort. Imagine how honored you would feel and loved and special you would feel if all of this attention has been given to you and way more food than you could ever eat. But they just wanted to communicate to you, we're so glad that you're here. 
Everything about this meal is to be a picture to us of generosity and kindness, of grace and love and compassion, and most of all, of beauty. What a beautiful scene and what a beautiful meal and what a beautiful thing to do to people you don't even know. But it's not the only place in town to eat. There is another invitation. And it's the one that is given in verses 13 and following. This is the invitation to eat with folly. There's the invitation to eat with wisdom, to enjoy a meal with wisdom. And there is another invitation to eat and enjoy a meal with folly. It's a very different dinner. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, the woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. It's not a, not a really nice statement. If someone sends you a Christmas card and signs it Proverbs 9, 13, that's not a compliment. You're, you're supposed to, to get a little bit about her disposition here and maybe the way that she makes you feel. You see there where it says woman folly is loud. That word loud is the same word used for a harlot, a prostitute in chapter 7 verse 11. And the meaning behind that word is of something that is filled with unrest. Something that feels turbulent and has a lot of commotion. Something that feels chaotic. And you're really supposed to think about that word as something that does not bring calm, that does not bring peace, but that brings chaos. There is nothing peaceful here. Or the way in which she dresses feels as if her life is a bit chaotic. The way in which she talks feels that her life is a bit chaotic. The way in which she puts herself together just feels in every way that there's some unrest there. She doesn't give a picture of, of peace. It says she's also seductive. That word seductive is a very unusual word, which means someone who is full of this simpleness. Not simplicity, but this, this simple-mindedness that's used in the book of Proverbs. Remember the simple-minded is the one who doesn't think about anything. They're not thoughtful about life. They're not thoughtful about eternity. They're not thoughtful about God. They're not thoughtful about the way they go, the decisions they make, the, the friends that they choose. They're just not thoughtful. And the primary thing the father is trying to do is trying to deliver the son from his simple mind. Think deeply about the things of the Lord. Give thought to the decisions you make. Life matters. But this person here, this woman folly, is filled with this simple mindedness. There is no thought behind her life. There is no care. She also, in a very unflattering statement, knows nothing. See that in verse 13? She knows nothing. Meaning, she has no encouragement. She has nothing stimulating to talk about. She has no wisdom to offer you. Have you ever been on a date or been to a meal with someone and they just had nothing to say? That there was nothing encouraging about the conversation, that you were trying to make the conversation go? You just wondered if they were empty inside? This is the vision you get. The picture is this, she's no better than anyone she invites. She doesn't have any more, she doesn't offer any more, she has no more wisdom, and so she's offering that the simple would come and eat with her, but the simple need to know she has nothing to offer them whatsoever. She knows nothing. Look at her disposition in verse 14. It emphasizes the fact that she's sitting down, she sits at the door of her house, and she takes a seat on the highest places of town. What does that mean? Well, it means there's no care, there's no thought, there's no attention, there's, there's no really work or effort that's being put, on, put in. Imagine the difference between her and woman wisdom. And so it says that woman folly just pulls up a chair and she just sits. She finds a seat and she sits into it. Well, if you go back to verses one through three, 
It says woman wills wisdom. She builds, she is hewn, she slaughtered, she mixed, she set, and she sent out. In other words, she's working extremely hard. She never sits down. There's never a picture of her sitting down. That all that she's doing is standing and working to make sure that everything is right. She's giving her best effort. And even the amount in which she works communicates how special this meal is. But then here's Lady Folly. There's no table. There's no linens. There's no place settings. There's no wine. There's no meat. It is clear that there's no effort. There's no care. There's no kindness at all. There's nothing about this meal that makes you feel special at all. And then her invitation. You might have noticed that verse 16 is the exact same as verse 4. Her invitation is, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him lack sense, she says. But what she offers is a bit different. She says that stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So do you see what woman wisdom did? Woman wisdom sent messengers out. She gathered people out and said, I want you to go out and I want you to find everybody. And I want you to tell them what we have to offer them. And I want you to plead with them to come. And I want you to tell them about the food. I want you to tell them about the bread. I want you to tell them about the wine. That's exactly what the messenger says at the beginning of Proverbs 9. Come and have the bread. Come and have the wine. But here's Lady Folly just sitting there, unkept. Clearly her life is in chaos. And if anybody wants to come, come on in. There's no effort to the invitation. And what she says is this, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. There's nothing fresh, there's nothing prepared, there's nothing nourishing, there's nothing good. It's almost as if she invites you into the house and says, hey, I, I didn't really think much about this, but you're welcome to go to the fridge and if there's any leftovers, you can have them. That's what the invitation feels like. Makes you feel a little bit different than the one who invited you over to experience the meal in the dining room. But more significantly, the the reference there to stolen water is in Proverbs a reference to sexual immorality. Here's what it means. She's offering you something cheap. She's offering you something that will leave you with shame, that will leave you with regret, something that will not satisfy. It will just leave you more hungry. And so when you compare the invitation to these two meals, there is meat versus bread there's wine versus water. There's working versus sitting. And there is ultimately life versus death. And the reason you have a parable like this is because you're supposed to look at it and say, why in the world would anyone ever go to eat with folly? Everything about the invitation of wisdom is better. Everything. I mean, just think, think practically. The food is better. The host is better. The house is better. The people are better. Everything about it is better. But think about emotionally. Wisdom makes you feel loved and cherished and honored. Wisdom makes you feel as if you're precious, if there's something valuable about you. Wisdom actually overwhelms you with a sense of significance and honor that you never imagined that you would have. And Folly just sits there in an unkept way and says, yeah, if you want to come in, you can come in. There is something seductive about her because she does offer pleasure. But spiritually, she has skeletons in her closet. And I don't mean that as a metaphor. Look at what it says in verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. She has skeletons in her closet in a metaphor. She has things she's hiding. But more significantly than that, if you open up her closet, there are skeletons in her closet. Because the people that go in do not come out alive. They die in there. The simplicity of fools, Proverbs 1, will destroy them. So you just can't help but to wonder, well, why would, 
Why would anyone go to eat there? Because there's even the promise. Look at the difference between verse 18. He does not know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And then verse 6 where it says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. I have life for you. I have wisdom for you and insight for you. So why would anyone go eat with folly? Well, chapter 7 says that we know that they do. Chapter 7 is that picture we get of someone looking out their window and person after person sees folly and notices the folly and hears the seductive words and chooses to go in, not knowing that they're going like an ox led to a slaughter, they're going to their death. There's some in this room that choose to eat with folly and reject the invitation of wisdom. Why? Well, that's the purpose of verses 7 through 12. Those verses that seem out of place right there between these two parables is showing us the reason why so many would choose folly over wisdom, even though it seems like such a ridiculous thing to do. Let me tell you a couple of reasons, and these are emotional, these are significant. The first one is this, folly appeals to the proud and complacent. Folly appeals to the arrogant. Because wisdom says, I have instruction for you, I have correction for you, I have insight, but if you don't want to acknowledge that you need help, and if you want to be proud, and if you want to not listen to the instruction of anyone else, then you're going to choose the way of folly. And you might know in your heart that wisdom is better, but you don't want correction. And so when it says here, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. That the proud and the arrogant don't want to submit. The proud and the arrogant don't want to acknowledge they need help. And so instead of acknowledging their desperate need for help, they will instead choose the way of folly. Folly also attracts the complacent. Think about this. Folly offers you nothing but shame and regret. So why would anyone choose it? Because folly also costs you nothing initially. So it doesn't seem to cost anything. The way of wisdom does cost you something. You have to humble yourself. You have to acknowledge your need. But folly says, hey, listen, I'm offering you maybe this sexual pleasure or momentary pleasure. I'm offering you the world, but you will lose your soul. It costs you nothing. And so the complacent who don't want to get humble, the complacent who don't want to submit to Jesus Christ, they will gladly follow folly, knowing that it will lead them to their death simply because they don't care. That's how she gets some. There's something even deeper than this. I thought about this week and the Lord really stirred in my heart as I thought, why is it that anyone would choose it? And another reason is this, folly appeals, listen, to the shamed and defeated. To the shamed and defeated. Now, I believe that we don't deserve anything from the Lord but his wrath. I believe that we don't deserve anything but, but hell. But I also believe this. I also believe that the God who created you loves you and treasures you and longs to be with you. I believe that you're valuable. I believe that you're worth something. And I also know that the greatest tactic of the enemy is to fight against every statement I just said and fill you with so much regret and so much shame that you cannot imagine that you would ever get invited to the house. You might feel even so embarrassed about what you have done that you can't even imagine what it would be like to sit at that dining room table and feast on that meal? And could it be that shame and regret and a sense of defeat 
would cause someone to choose the way of folly, to choose the way of greater sin, to choose the way of greater shame just because they don't think they're worth anything else. It's exactly what's happening. There are some who already feel so cheap. They feel so used. They don't feel worth anything. And so let the enemy win with shame and win with regret and win with a sense of dirtiness and not knowing that the one who invited them to the table to feast is also the one who will clean them up and prepare them for the feast. This is exactly the significance of verse 10. I told you that the book ends to Proverbs 1 and 9 are this statement. It's used in chapter 1 and in for chapter, 10, chapter 9. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What it means is this is that the key to making this decision is the fear of the Lord. What that means is you acknowledge God and his holiness and his purity and his glory and his splendor. And you're humbled by who he is. But yet you recognize that that God who is that glorious and, and is that beautiful has made a way through the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you can feast with him. And he invites you to come and be clothed with his righteousness. But the fear of the Lord is saying, I acknowledge God for who he is. And I choose to trust him. And I choose to humble myself. And I choose to receive the invitation. I choose to follow the one who invited me throughout the path that leads to the house, that leads to the meal. You see, what Proverbs 9 is, is not only a parable of two meals. It's a parable of two invitations. It is a picture of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the beauty of Jesus himself. On one side, you have folly who has made no effort for you whatsoever. It's a picture of, of the deceiver, Satan, who does not care about you. He does not value you. He wants nothing but to send you to hell and make your life a living hell. He wants to fill you with more regret. He wants to fill you with more shame. He wants to fill you with more pain. And he will sit by the way and offer you a thousand cheap thrills but it will lead you to death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. He wants to kill your soul. He does not care about you. He hates you. He despises you. He thinks you're worth nothing. And he wants to take you to hell with him. And then there's the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ. So different with all of his love and grace and kindness and his beauty and the way in which he honors you and he makes you feel loved and he makes you feel seen and he makes you feel valuable and worth something. And he's saying to you, I've prepared a feast for you. You say, well, certainly not for me. He says, yes, I've prepared it for you and everything is there and he longs to eat with you and he longs to be with you and he longs to enjoy you. He overflows with affection for you and he wants to sit you down and lavish you with kindness and speak honor over you and stand during the meal and bless you with words of affirmation. He has prepared a table for you and he wants to feast with you for all of eternity. He wants to celebrate you and to sing over you. When we think about what God has prepared for us, it makes sense of 1 Corinthians 2.9, which says this, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the beauty of Christ in the heart of the gospel, that God has prepared something for you 
so beautiful and so wonderful that is such a picture of his grace and his kindness and the love that he wants to lavish upon you. It is so incredible that you will think certainly that you could not come. And then he would say, you can come, not because you deserve it, but because I'm gonna take off the old rags of sin and shame and I'm gonna clothe you with my righteousness and you will have exactly what you need to wear to sit at the table. And you won't feel shame. You'll feel like you belong. Not because of you, but because of Christ. And the reason I wanted us to take communion at the end of our service today is because I wanted you to hold this in your hand and I wanted you to see Christ. And I wanted you to see his broken body and I wanted you to see his shed blood. And I wanted to see that the way that we get a seat at the table is we get clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's the way we get a seat at the table. We get at the seat at the table, not because of what we've done, but what Christ has done for us. And we see ourselves when we look at this. Listen, look at me. We see ourselves as broken. We see ourselves as deserving of nothing. But we already see ourselves because of the grace of God being able to receive the fullness of God's righteousness through Christ. The fullness of his blessing, the fullness of his favor. We get to see the blood of Jesus Christ washing away our shame and washing away our sins. And that demonic sense of unworthiness and dirtiness washed away by Christ. And we get to see each other when we look at this. Because we don't sit at the table alone. That we are brought together by the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And it is the family that feasts. And it's the family that celebrates all of those who have come to know Christ. When we see this, we look forward. We look forward to what awaits those who know him. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 25, this prophetic word about what will happen for those who know the Lord in all of eternity. See if this sounds familiar. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces. And the reproach, the shame of his people will be taken away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. So let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the feast, the feast of joy and the feast of, of gladness that is ours because of Christ. And what God has called me to do for you this morning is to be one of those messengers, which is what we are every time we present the gospel to come and say, listen, the feast has been prepared for you. All you must do is receive the invitation of Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning for just a moment before we take the communion This elements that we hold in our hand have so much to say to us. But the primary thing they say to us is the beauty of Christ. The ability for you to receive Christ. You see, the reason that you can only take these elements if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you take them in an unworthy manner, meaning you're not a believer, then you drink judgment upon yourself. Because you're lying to everyone in the room and to the Holy Spirit saying that you have something you don't have. The taking of these elements represent 
that I have received it. So I'm just asking you, have you received the invitation? There are only two meals. One of Christ leads to life and the one of your adversary that leads to death and more regret and more pain and more shame. And so I beg you on behalf of Jesus Christ to receive him. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see your sin and you see Christ on the tree and you acknowledge that the reason that he died is for your sins. And you just say, Lord, I'm trusting your death as the payment for my sins. I'm ready to humble myself. I wanna trust you and I wanna follow you. The Bible says, if you will do that, he'll save you. And you'll begin moment by moment to get a little taste of what it means to feast with Christ and you will look forward to the ultimate feast with him. If you have not done that, I'm pleading with you now, right now, before God, say, God, save me. And now for those of us clothed in Christ's righteousness, let's take this bread out together. And we see it with our eyes, we touch it with our hands. It's, it's a reminder of the real physical body of Jesus Christ broken for us. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And we turn it over and we think about the, all the symbolism of wine in our text today. And all the attention and all the care and all the affection and the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from every sin and shame. And we do this in remembrance of him. So Father, we rejoice in Christ. May we see his beauty. May we love him more. May we give himself to him more fully. Thank you for the honor that you give us and bestow upon us. For the way in which you have loved us and shown your affection to us. I pray in Jesus' name against the enemy who wants to bring more shame. I pray against the enemy in Jesus' name that makes us settle for anything less than the full inheritance that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's rejoice in Jesus together.